Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey guys, Ryan here. Before we get to this week's interview, I just wanted to give a special shout out to our new Patreon subscribers. Thank you to Linda T, Trudy W, Mark S, Thomas G, Carly M, Jonathan M, Frank L, Timothy H, Jessica T, Harold P, Carl H, Jude T, Guillaume R, Sticky Sounds Zine, Chris 646, Allison C, Ash E, Laura, Gustav 12346, Adam H, Alexander K, K C, Nale R, Alicia L G, Lisa T, Timothy H, and Gary S. To all my patrons, old and new, thank you for your continued support. If you're a $5 and above patron, there's over 60 bonus episodes waiting for you on our custom RSS feed right now. At the $1 to $3 level, you get all main episodes early and a shout out right here on the show and on the official Somewhere in the Skies website. To learn more and to help support the show, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Today on Somewhere in the Skies, we're talking to Dan Mirick, writer and director of the famous 1999 found footage phenomenon, The Blair Witch Project. And now he's back with his most recent film, Skyman, a bold and compelling study of the fascinating and unquestioning world of UFO subculture and the profound and complex journey of the UFO experiencer. were lighting up with reports of an alleged triangle-shaped UFO in the... Some local residents claim to have seen an unidentified flying object just after sunset last evening, with one young man even claiming to have been visited by what he describes as a skyman. He didn't look human. I, I knew he wasn't a human. He has been so razor-sharp focused. I guess I just figured he was finally, like, ready to tell a story. I'm telling you, it was really, really loud. I was standing right here, and it was like... It's our magnet, or what's left of it. It was propelled somehow. Okay, so what? You really think that aliens did that? I don't know what to think, Gina. All I know is something's going on, and I don't think it's human-related. Arthur C. Clarke once said, A sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I've always liked magic. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague.
Dan, thank you so much for joining me today on Somewhere in the Skies. Really happy to be here. Yeah, I mean, the real reason we're here today is to talk about your new film, Skyman. Before we even get to Skyman, I was wondering if maybe briefly you could touch on uh, how you came to create your first found footage film. I'm sure you're sick of getting this question, but The Blair Witch Project. Yeah, what were, what are your thoughts on pioneering this kind of found footage genre and uh, everything that followed after that? Well, back in those days, you know, it was it was uh, a place, I think, in, uh, you know, my so-called filmmaking career. My friend Ed Sanchez and I had just graduated film school and we were looking for a project to do together. And, and you know, truth be told, Blair Witch at the time was like the cheapest thing that we had to shoot that we could probably pull off with our, the resources we had at our disposal. And. I think with the advent of, you know, reality TV sort of just coming into its own in those days, um, 24-7 news and whatnot, I think audiences were starting to become sensitized to that style of uh, storytelling and that, that kind of visual aesthetic. So we thought it would be cool to do something simple and cheap but direct, um, sort of primally motivated to scare people. Um, and so Blair Witch sort of became the, the logical choice for us based on an idea we came up with in film school. Interesting. And yeah, I mean, so much was spawned after that. And I, to this day, I can't tell you how much the film affected me. So I mean, let's, I guess we'll fast forward then to your new film, Skyman, which isn't just found footage. Um, So could you maybe tell us a little about how the structure and style of your new film kind of differs from the Blair Witch Project? Well, I, I knew there was going to be some direct comparisons to Blair. I mean, I've done a, you know, a bunch of different movies and projects over the years, and most of which were kind of straight-up narratives. And so with Skyman, I was sort of wanting to get back to my roots, if you will, I, just something simple and contained and um, somewhat improvisational. And a lot of the lessons I learned on Blair, which I brought to bear on Skyman, but at the same time, I didn't. I didn't want it to, to be a kind of a direct kind of repeat stylistically of what Blair Witch was, which is a straight up found footage film. You look at Blair Witch; it's the it's the footage shot by the filmmakers. Mm-hmm. So I I literally had three versions of the script for Skyman. I had a I had a straight up narrative version, which would be the you know the five million dollar Hollywood kind of you know, a, a take on, on the story. And then I had a, uh, in the other direction, I had a straight up found footage version, which would be all of Carl's tapes, if you will, which I thought was too reminiscent of Blair Witch. And then I have the hybrid version, which is what I ended up landing on, which gave me the, I think the necessary freedom to shoot the film the way the story dictated, because I think part of what's, makes Skyman interesting for me is is this sort of journey that Carl is going on, this sort of, uh, you know, search for answers, self-discovery, maybe a little redemption. Um, but at the same time, we're kind of looking at Carl as much as we are with him. And I thought um, that there is a there is a perspective from the filmmaker that we're witnessing this kind of chronicling of this man's kind of events that I think um, uh, is important. So I sort of inserted myself sort of in this kind of Earl Morris-esque way that I'm bringing Carl to 
to the world. I am, I am, you know, showcasing Carl's journey and his relationship with his family through the prism of my, of, of, of my camera. And that gives me a little bit more, uh, creative freedom in that regard to kind of, um, reveal the kind of the backdrop and the desert locations and the drone shots that Carl otherwise probably wouldn't have done had it been just straight up found footage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it allowed me to put a, another layer of, of exposition and another layer of complexity to the movie that, that um, Carl would not necessarily have done himself. Um, a good example, I think, is some of the scenes at the UFO festivals where I, as a filmmaker, thought it was an interesting juxtaposition of Carl, who's very serious about his mission and very serious to find answers and talk to people, other experiences like himself at these events, but is completely out of place with all the kind of UFO kitschiness that you often find at these festivals. So he's sort of a man, a fish out of water when when we see him in these in these uh scenarios and and that uh was an interesting and fun ability i had as a filmmaker watching carl and 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 um sort of making my own commentary as a filmmaker versus um you know any other approach i could have taken so it ultimately ended up being i think it was necessary to write those other two versions of the script to kind of work my brain through those two paths yeah. but ultimately landing on this kind of hybrid approach i think was the best for the film absolutely yeah i think you said it best like it, it does give you the freedom as the filmmaker and you know a lot of people don't understand the creative process like of a script writer like how many iterations it goes through what you exactly know, yeah what actually makes it when you start shooting i i think you made the right choice man for sure and i'm sure thank the viewers you thank you would agree um I guess sort of to backtrack a little, I'll get the technical questions out of the way here, Dan. Um, what got you interested in making a movie about an alien encounter? You mentioned Carl. He is your protagonist in the film who is a quote-unquote experiencer. So, yeah, where did the the inception of this whole idea of close encounters, uh, maybe abduction? We don't really know that with Carl. But, um, yeah, how did this all come to be? Well, um you know, strangely enough, this is sort of an idea I had even before Blair Witch. I, I grew up in the in the late seventies, early eighties, where um, you know, ufology, abductions, Bigfoot, Bermuda Triangle, all that stuff was sort of in the zeitgeist in those days, and um, so I was sort of a product of 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 the times. And you know, when I was a preteen in my kind of suburban neighborhood in Florida. Me and my friends had this kind of UFO club that we would go out and sort of investigate local, local, uh, you know, uh, phenomena, if you will. And and I think um, it was always a part of my kind of uh, childhood to fantasize about, you know, aliens and what it would be like. And of course, Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out around that time, which really kind of uh, ramped up my imagination in that whole world. So. I guess I always wanted to sort of like explore that um, more from the experiencer's perspective rather than it being sort of this procedural or investigative reports that we've seen so many times or is it true? Is it not true? Blah, blah, blah. Really what I wanted to come at is from the angle of how it affects the people, how it affects their family and whether you believe in UFOs or not, 
um, you know that Carl believes it. And that sort of drive and the determination and his in his life experience, having claimed to have been visited, um, is incredibly important to him and has had a huge impact on his life. And I think that's compelling. And a lot of these experiencers are in the same boat as Carl. And so I just found that an interesting character study that I wanted to explore. And it started to kind of materialize more over the last few years or after my last film I did for A&E, which was sort of a straight up thriller. I, I revisited this idea and literally took my little RV out to the desert in Southern California and, and uh, camped out at, at uh, Joshua Tree um, for several weeks and wrote the script outline for it because uh, I knew I wanted to kind of do it in the desert. And so, yeah, that that uh, materialized uh, shortly afterwards. And, and uh, my producer, Joe Restano, came on board and we were able to kind of get it going. And and it's really one of the best experiences I've had making films. This is just a lot of fun to do. That's awesome. It's always good to hear, you know, when something is that rewarding. And I mean, you mentioned the landscapes. It was gorgeous seeing these Joshua Tree places. And, um, you know, being a New York City guy, whenever I can get out there, it's just, it's a magical, magnetic place. And it's uh, no, it's no surprise that this is where Carl would go. <laughs> it really is. I mean, there's, you can understand how the desert um has a lot of spiritual significance for people because when you're out there especially at night you're you're just blanketed by the by the stars um they're so vivid you know with such clear dry skies uh it's hard not to feel a connection to the universe and hard not to feel uh sort of insignificant you know as compared to the vastness of the sky above so it's no mystery to me why we see and hear about a lot of uh ufo experiences in these desert landscapes and um and visually you know it was kind of an allegory i think to carl's experience i mean it, 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 if you look at some of those kind of drone shots it, it is you've got this guy who's sort of an alien in his own landscape right i mean it looks like he's on a moon base <laughs> on on mars or should say a mars base on mars but it, it, he's sort of an alien in his own in his own world and, and i think that visual of the desert helps to reinforce that yeah moving to the score dan um composed by don miggs and smashing pumpkins billy corgan how did this happen when what was it like working with these guys on your film well the score was very important to me it's one of those things that i i again i, I much like the characters and the casting i wanted to resist something that was sort of heavy-handed and overly mysterious and spooky and yada 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 i mean it's sort of the easy easy approach i wanted something a bit more character driven you know with with the elements of the of that mystery but also more importantly having a sense of character and and longing and uh, and this kind of you know almost this tinge of sadness with this with with the story with carl and his search for kind of meaning and uh, I met Don Miggs through my producer um, and a, a good friend of ours, Christian Kreppel, um, who's producing another project of mine, introduced me to Don. And Don knew Billy, had worked with Billy in the past. Don's a musician himself, has his own band, and he has a, a recording studio. And he really responded to the material. And we just sort of hit it off. We started talking about this is more than just a UFO movie. It's it's really about this this guy and his, and his quest. 
and I wanted I wanted the kinds of of songs and composition and cues that um, were as you know varied and as identifiable from a character standpoint as as any kind of score you do for any movie. And I think he embraced that. Um, he recruited the help of Billy Corgan to get involved because apparently he's a he's a pretty big UFO fan as well. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so they they got together also with the help of um, our other composer Greg Hansen, who's who's uh, uh, helped Don out on a lot of this a lot of this music. So we just had a really awesome team that completely understood the character underpinnings of the movie and, and wrote the music that, that identified uh, Carl identified his, his, his quest and his, his plight. And, um, and it was real, a real joy to have that collaboration with them. And it was, I think the, the score sort of stands on its own two feet as a result. Absolutely. I can't wait. I hope we'll be able to get that someday. Um, well, you can it. actually. It's it's available on Amazon Music now. So the, the soundtrack is up there now. Oh, perfect. That's awesome. Yeah. I know what I'm doing after this. <laughs> um, <laughs> cool. Well, you mentioned character, Dan. I'd love to talk a little about uh, Carl. I mean, Michael was excellent in this film. You know, so immediately I start going and looking up everything else he's done. And, you know, his his resume isn't that big, but, man, he packed a punch in this. And he's kind of the the epitome of an experiencer, in my eyes, having mm-hmm. interviewed hundreds of these people throughout the years. Um, you know, I was a little hesitant when I saw that this film focused directly on an experiencer and how it would be handled. But, man, you knocked it out of the park and you gave him so much depth. So I was wondering, what made you decide to cast this guy, Mike in the, as the main character. And how did you two work together as like a director and a, an actor to craft this character? Well, it, I knew in the early days, I mean, you're always kind of faced with this decision whenever you make a movie, like, do we cast someone that's sort of a known quantity, you know, to help with financing or distribution or whatnot, or do you go with an unknown, which, um, certainly is easier on the budget, but you know doesn't doesn't have the, the PR power that a name would have. And um, but I just knew on this particular film, the kind of documentary approach I was taking to it, I my instincts were telling me to go with an unknown, so we, this individual wouldn't come to the screen with any pre-existing baggage for the audience. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we held a bunch of open calls in L.A. I think I had four or five, you know, open calls. And and oftentimes when I when I I cast, I really enjoy holding open calls because you really find some amazing talent, you, even if it's not for that particular movie you're you're casting for. Um, maybe you know you put a pin in somebody that you'll use down the road. But um, in this case, I, I knew I knew what I didn't want, not necessarily exactly what I wanted. I knew the, the character is written, had a little bit of Asperger's. He was on the spectrum, um, you know, super smart in certain areas. He was inspired by, uh, you know, a story a friend of mine told me about a truck driver that could, that you, at face value was like a total redneck, but he could do the New York crossword puzzle in like 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wow, you know, so that was sort of, um, kind of was my my inspiration for for the Carl character. 
along with a lot of other interviewees that I've 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 uh, read about testimonials over the years. So that was sort of what I was fishing for. But what I I knew I didn't want was like the straight up wacko, you know, some crazy um, stereotype that um, often gets portrayed in these sorts of of stories. Mm -hmm. So. You know, Michael came in and he had this sort of subtle demeanor about him and this sort of childlike quality that I really liked. Um, he was a musician by trade, very creative guy. And um, I had a couple of scenes already written for the for the movie. And, and one in particular, you, you, if you remember at the end of the film where Mike's sort of giving his last goodbye to his family, he's talking yeah. directly into the camera so I had Mike come in on a call back because I liked his first read. And I just had him read that scene right to camera as as it would be shot in the film. And he just nailed it. I just said, that's my guy. And um, there were so many complexities about his delivery. His, uh, completely understated, but yet very identifiable. Um, and it's a, it's a really tough tough subtle balance to, to, to play. So once I had Mike, then it was about, you know, finding a genie that would that would complement him well and nicolette did a wonderful job for us and so as we sort of locked down our core leads then it was a matter for me to sort of like okay how do we make them uh, comfortable and and understand my process you know because right. i don't i don't shoot movies in a normal way and, and i got with michael i said look man i i know you're probably used to having a call time and you, you know this is and he said no no do whatever you need to do so i called him on several occasions and we just drove out to the desert way early on in the process and started just shooting scenes and shooting video and and, and allowing him to get into the character of carl and figure it out and make it his own while we were out in the desert and i was just rolling camera to see how it looked and make tweaks and, and allow that, allow that character to sort of grow inside him. Um, and as well, uh, develop a relationship, you know, as a filmmaker, cause I'm a character in the movie as well. I'm, 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 I'm sort of the off camera questionnaire, right. That's, that's having and supposedly been following this guy around for months. So I wanted to kind of method out on that process. And, and so early on, I got together with Michael on several occasions um, where we shot scenes together, workshop that also Nicolette came out. We did a few scenes with her so they could get to know each other. We could all get really comfortable where I just was sort of like this fly on the wall. And then we even went to a couple of the UFO festivals, one in Oregon. A couple of times we went to the one in Oregon, of course, in Roswell. And it was just Mike and myself and a camera. And we were in character the entire you know, two or three days we were there shooting scenes, a lot of which ended up in the movie. Uh, asking questions and being in character. And it just was a, a, a real luxury as a filmmaker and artist to be able to work with an actor like that, that completely embraced that process um, and was able to do so. We had no, no burden of a studio telling us that we had to do this or make adjustments or whatever. We were able to let it organically grow um, as we were shooting it. So by the time we shot principal photography, later that year in October, um, we were already dialed in and, uh, and it was, it was great. That was just a real rewarding, um, you know, lovely process that I wish every movie could, 
could could uh, could do I could do on every film. Yeah. yeah, and I mean that's the challenge with these sort of found footage, you know, movies. I I mean I remember meeting so many actors who would tell me, oh yeah, like I had to take actual classes on just how to act in a found footage film, you know, as opposed yeah. to like you said, a big budget narrative and and whatnot. So I mean, yeah, like you said, that dance between actor and director is always really fascinating to me and um i I did want to touch on the the festival thing that was really really cool it was a part that really struck out to me because you know as a ufo researcher i speak at these things um right i i was i was at the roswell festival the year prior to your filming of this but i know that atmosphere man um when you get there yeah it's it's, yeah it's it's, interesting what do you think personally about all that well, it's an interesting, um, you know, dichotomy. It, it, there's, a, there's a sort of paradox with these festivals because on one hand, there's a lot of merchandising going on, a lot of commercialization going on, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people selling T-shirts and there's alien costume contests. And so there's a real festive atmosphere, which make them a lot of fun. So, you know, it's a good place to a good time to take the family and watch a parade and have a few beers and whatnot. And then there's this other component to these things, which are very serious. You've got, you've got, um, you know, Travis Walton giving a, a panel on, you know, in at the auditorium two blocks away and you're, you know, full UFO panel where a lot of people are going to, you know, are sold out and they're going, they're going to listen to people speak. And, you know, um, so there's this interesting sort of, uh, two worlds coexisting at a lot of these festivals that I found interesting. And I wanted to sort of bring into full relief through Carl's character, where here's this serious guy, um, ironically interviewed by two, you know, self-proclaimed weirdo UFO types, right? Yeah. Um, Where Carl is the the understated one and they call him the weirdo, right? So it's, so it's, uh, but I felt, I felt that sort of um, identification with Carl's character where, you, you know, you're a person who's not quite fitting into the world around you. You've got sort of this overarching mission, mission to find an answer and, um, and no one's really taking you seriously about it. And that's sort of, he's that outcast, right? That, that a lot of us um, have felt and certainly a lot of experiences have felt. So I wanted to kind of bring that into full relief both visually and I think um, through through Carl's dialogue and character at these festival environments that, um, and he even says himself, he's like, this is the first festival, one of these I've ever been to. Mm-hmm. And you're like, um, which I'm not surprised. And, and he's not, he's obviously an introvert, you know, probably very, uh, you know, uh, has a phobia about being in b- these big social situations, but it, you know, the compulsion to go out and find answers forces him to kind of go out, and stake out on his own to these these you know uh events to try to find some sort of commonality and maybe some uh you know um uh, reaffirmation if you will um through other people that have had the same experiences and um and that's that's in, uh, i just thought an interesting component to all this because there is a lot of commercialization uh, my personal experience, you, there's, there's a lot of kitschiness and, um, you know, goofiness involved with 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 this whole entire subculture, obviously making a lot of money. There's a lot of crackpots out there. 
Um, and even Carl himself, when he's showing you his, his sort of research library, he says, you know, 90% of the stuff is bunk. But through all the chaff, there are these unexplained incidents. And through all the chaff, there are, there are, there are noteworthy events. And that's, I think, the important thing to, to, to clarify, I think, with Carl and his experience. Absolutely. I mean, we, you know, in this field always say, like, if even one of these cases, whether it's just a, you know, an object in the sky up to claimed alien abductions, let's say, uh, if even one of them is real and genuine and true, like, that's enough. And I, I think you're right. I think that's what Carl. All you need is one. Going for. All you need is one. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, for Carl, it might not just be this one because we learn in the film that his father also had an experience. I'd love to touch on this a little with you, Dan, if that's cool. Um, sure. Yeah, why did you decide to add this layer to the story? And do you believe uh, that these experiences kind of do run generational or within families? I I, I definitely imply that. With, with Carl, I mean, uh, what I was attempting to go for with Carl's characters, um, you know, I like when there's a level of ambiguity with, with characters, because, you know, we're all complicated animals, or, you know, you can't really, you know, overly generalize too much, or you run the risk of, of, of missing out on a lot of the, the juicy details of the human condition. And I think with Carl, um, you it's easy to sort of, like, stereotype him as a, as a kind of a working-class redneck living in Barstow, um, but once you sort of peel back some of the layers, you realize, oh, this, there's some interesting quirks about this guy. There's some interesting layers to this guy that you don't see at first blush. And, um, and his father is one of those layers that there's, there is a connection to his father. That's obviously very sincere and very personal to him. Um, arguably his father was like the one person in his life that took him seriously as far as the UFO experience was concerned, being that he had one himself, according to Carl. Um, and that and that understanding has been lost for him. His father's dead now. So he doesn't have that. He doesn't have that shoulder to lean on um, as he probably did growing up. And his mother obviously has has had an issue with him regarding that experience and his sister as loving as she is and as tolerant of him as she is, is a bit dismissive of his experience as well. And um, so I wanted to have this connection to his past, the connection to his father that was sort of the sad tragedy that that um, the one person in his life that kind of believed in him is no longer around. And also a driving, a motivator for him to sort of want to, to to prove dad was right, you know, to in his own world and his own exploration, his own search for answers at the end of the movie to have some level of redemption in his father's eyes and his and his family's eyes. But also to kind of, you know, show his father wherever he may be that that um, he was ultimately um, they, they weren't crazy. Right. And so I think that would just had gave his Carl's character a, a lot more kind of meaning and sentimental value than just being a guy you know looking to reconnect with an alien there's there's more layers to it than that and, and oftentimes there are right yeah and i think you stressed it earlier too like it's a human story you know it's about this sensational thing or this uh, otherworldly thing but at the end of the day it's about the person 
having the experience. Yeah. yeah. It often is. When you have these discussions and you do these interviews and you, and you talk to these people, um, you, you, you can't help but also take it into account their world, their, their experience and how it, uh, how their life is influencing what they've seen or not seen or, or what have you. And there's, there's a, there's a lot of that inherent biases involved with, with these sorts of experiences. Um, and I, I just find that fascinating. Again, it, it's, it's whether you believe in what they saw or not is true. You have to believe that they believe it. And there's a, there's a, a, a strong, powerful, compelling observation in that that I find very interesting and, and which I, I've always drawn to, drawn to why people believe things as much as what they're believing. Yeah, I, I actually, you know, I can relate to that being in this UFO field every waking moment of my life. Um, I agree yeah. with you. It is more of a cultural study or human case study than actually figuring out what the hell these UFOs and, uh, you know, paranormal phenomena actually are. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Owls are somehow connected to UFOs. I don't say that lightly. After over a decade of obsessive investigation, I am convinced of this connection. As strange as it may seem, people are seeing owls in the highly charged moments of a UFO sighting and within the challenging memories of UFO abduction. This mystery has been the focus of my research. My name is Mike Cleland, and I have explored these connections in my book, the Messengers. At its core, this book is simply a collection of stories, and each is a remarkable real-life experience. The Messengers is also my own story of how owls played a role in my life. The Messengers is the first in a trilogy of books. All my books are available on Amazon in paperback, ebook, and very soon as audiobooks. Well, one 
sort of last aspect in the film, Dan, I'd love to touch on with you, is this owl, this idea of owls. No, I won't give away too much in the film, but you do reference a very good friend of mine and colleague uh, about how owls play into all of this. And I remember right when I saw that part in your film, I sent a link to the movie to this person and um, had him watch it. And <laughs> he <cool>. flipped <laughs> the F out, man. I'm not going to lie. He was like, you got to be kidding me. Um, so yeah, we <laughs> no, mentioned him by name. <laughs> yep, I know he was, yeah. he was extremely yeah. touched by that. So yeah, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. What, what well, role? We, if you can get, if you can get him to give us a quote, that would be even better. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I guarantee you, he's going to listen to this interview too. So we will make that happen. But yeah, I guess we will name and not shame him here. That's Mike Cleland. Um, the, the owl guy is what we call him in the UFO. <laughs> field did yeah. you know about his work prior or what what kind of um well i was that? doing a lot of i was doing a lot of research prior to the movie you know years ago and i you know again i sort of been you know loosely involved um with a lot of this stuff for, for many years but mm-hmm. um ran across his book as a recommended reading and read it just loved it it was just an amazing book and and you know part of my approach to most any movie I do, whether I, I succeed at it or not, is anyone's argument. But um, you know I I don't like to phone things in. I, I I like to have the details worked out. I mean I guess I equate it to like if you're going to do a a scene in an ER, the greatest compliment is that a doctor comes up to you and says, you did it right, right? So I, I, I wanted this movie to have the details worked out that ufologists that are in the know, not necessarily the average moviegoer, but ufologists would go, you did your homework. You, yeah. I, that's totally meaningful. These little nooks and crannies, these little details you have in here are, are you obviously have, have – um, uh, you, you, you know, uh, done your research. It's just not an alien footprint in the sand. Right. So, um, so the owls, the, 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 the messengers was, uh, a fascinating book, fascinating read for me. And I, I wanted, uh, and admittedly a great visual, uh, for the film, mm-hmm. but it was a, it was sort of a turning point in the movie because this is where I think in the film where Carl, sort of goes all in yeah um you know when not one but two owls show up at the site it's kind of hard to argue that there's not some kind of screen memory going on um and it just reinforces what he already is kind of presupposed to believe and so when they when they make their appearance in the film that moment, if, if anyone has done any research in, in this topic, um, owls are play a significant part in a lot of these, a lot of these experiencers, um, recollections. You're like, wow, that is unusual for two owls just to kind of be hanging out at your campsite at, at the one weekend you decide to be, uh, looking for your, for aliens. It's, that's a one more little coincidence you put on the pile of coincidences that's become harder and harder to explain away and so yeah it's a turning point for carl in the movie um you know visually amazing i think as well and um our animal wrangler uh, chris rankin is a, is a friend of mine who she's worked on you know films of mine in the past she was able to 
to get her friend out there with a couple of owls from 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 L.A. and just did a wonderful job for us there. But that was uh, one of my favorite moments in the film. We weren't sure if it was going to work or not mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. owls, you're having to kind of, you know, wrangle trained owls. But uh, they look they just look amazing on on camera. And uh, and the reaction is really great from both Carl and Olo, who, who plays his best friend, Marcus. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, yeah, um, those owls deserve an award, man. They freaked me out. <laughs> but you're they are right. so cool. <laughs> it, it added such a deep richness to the film for, like what you said, the the more, I guess, UFO veterans out there. You make other references to valet and, um, you know, people like this, these names that we all know. But, you know, I can't blame the mainstream public for not caring who these people are and also just never but, having but heard I'll, of them. Yeah. Maybe not have heard of it, but, but maybe inspired to check it out. What yep. do, what, what, what do owls have involved with this? And oh, the giant rock is a real place. And the Integraton is a real place. It has a history of ufology. Yeah. And, you know, even at the gas pump where he lands on one, 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 right. That's numerology. All, there's a lot of overlapping, um, you know, symbology in the film that that, uh, you know, those that pick up on it will will appreciate. And and I even have a call out to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I don't know if you knew, noticed it or not, but it's a little bit of an Easter egg yep, yep. that um, when Carl is going through his newspaper and showing and reading his article to us on camera in his laundry room the author if you'll notice is roy neary who is the character in close encounters was a the richard dreyfus character in close encounters so that's my little call out to close encounters so this those little things i think are interesting and fun but also um in the spirit of having done a lot of research in this in this field um wanting to bring a, a kind of a level of authenticity with with a lot of the background and 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 even some of the people we interviewed and that are that play characters in the film, I, I like to move a little to more current news, Dan, and get your thoughts on this. Um, we seem to be living in kind of a much more accepting world, I guess would be a good word um, when it comes to UFOs. This whole New York Times article that came out a few years ago, Washington Post, yep. political, all that stuff. Um, we even are now having a new bill being drafted <laughs> concerning yeah. UFOs. This is crazy, man. This is like a world that us UFO people never thought we would see, but it seems to be gradually changing. So, yeah, did any of this play into your work at all throughout the process? Or what do you make of all this stuff happening right now? Well, it was really sort of a happy coincidence. I, I mean, when we first started sort of kind of, you know, ramping up, our Indiegogo campaign for the early days of Skyman, uh, you know, this is, I think, I want to say 2016. You know, I I can't remember if that's when the Tic Tac videos came out with, the, with the, Air, the Air Force or not. But certainly, you know, the declassified Project Blue Book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, happened within the last, you know, couple of years, uh, the, the, the air force videos certainly are pretty incredible when you look at them. So a lot of, you know, and, and of course the air, the area 51 sort of gathering, if you will, yeah, yeah. So, so all this, and I, and I think social media in general has amplified a lot of these topics and subjects where, 
Uh, and the Phoenix Lights is probably one of the more recent accounts that sort of like, you know, kind of blew everybody away. And so there's there's a lot of things that have happened um, that sort of form this nexus of this resurgence in awareness. And I think we just happen to be in the middle of it. We're just sort of by happenstance. Um, I've always wanted to do you know, movies in this space. I mean, I did a movie called The Objective years ago uh, about, you know, arguably an alien encounter in the war-torn hills of Afghanistan. So I've been sort of playing around in the space for a while. But the fact that the general public and sort of the mainstream um, and our political leaders are all sort of embracing it now as well, it's just sort of kind of lucky for us. But it's interesting to see to see it make a resurgence in recent years and, uh, you know, how many people are taking it seriously. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think as the, as time goes on and it becomes more publicly uh, acceptable, let's say, um, yeah, it'll be a whole new shift in how we view our world and, and everything in between. I mean, this whole UFO topic, you can connect it to anything, religion, economics, um, you know, politics obviously yeah I th- you're right i think astronomy too i mean we over the last i would say you know five to ten years you know our knowledge of earth-like planets in our own backyard um has expanded tremendously and, you know, i remember um thinking about Earth-like planets in sort of the goldilocks zone if you will um being sort of theoretical And now we literally have thousands of them on record that, oh, here's just in our observational window around, you know, a few light years from Earth. We've we've managed to identify a a whole ton of potential candidates that could support life. Right. And you extrapolate that number to the vastness of the universe. You just have to play the odds. It's just almost uh, you know, uh, an assured bet that there is intelligent life out there. Um, if not at this very second that we're on, the, at some point in history. So to me, scientifically speaking, it's 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 hard not to think that there isn't something else out there wondering just like we are, um, or maybe not. But, but um, now whether they're showing up in our backyards and flying saucers or not, it's open to debate. Mm-hmm. But certainly um, some some version of intelligent life out there is, seems to me a pretty sure bet. And that's, I, I think, what sparks my imagination and a lot of people's imagination. And these sort of increased discoveries of, of Earth-like planets capable, potentially sustaining life, I think has just helped to elevate that that in people's minds yeah i i think you're right i think once those two can converge maybe we'll find some answers if they've ever actually visited but yeah you're right i mean it just these things take time and um i i do feel personally that we're on the phenomenon's timetable uh when it comes to all this when they quote unquote they want to be discovered but um i i like to get your thoughts too on this dan um like disclosure this big word that a lot of ufo people use of Mm. our government saying you know admitting yeah you know we've known about this we've been keeping it secret blah 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 um do you think at least here in the united states that our government knows 
what's going on in our skies when it comes to these UFOs and claimed abductions and close encounters. Like, a lot of people think in the conspiracy world, there's this dark syndicate government, you know, hiding all these secrets and answers. But uh, what are your personal thoughts on that whole sweeping <laughs> part of all of this? I mean, I've never really been the the, 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 the deep state, dark government Mm -hmm. conspiracy guy myself i mean the government's like the worst at keeping secrets and <laughs> i mean get, getting getting you know the whole i guess you know it's sort of getting into flat earther and the moon landing on the moon of hoax folks which is like it's just all those scientists and all those you know press people over many decades and people to keep to have everyone keep to keep such a huge secret is just uh, to me sort of unrealistic mm -hmm. the the now are there events that are sort of documented as unknown and unexplained, you know, in the archives of, you know, the Air Force? Absolutely. I would not would not be surprised. And I'm not surprised when I see revelations of, oh, here's some sightings that we've had that we can't explain. Now, is that some grand conspiracy to hide it from the public? I don't think so. I think it's more. And look, we have to take responsibility as a public too. like the minute some authority figure in the military says, look, here's a UFO we think might be flying around Kansas. Everyone freaks out, right? Yeah. So they have to take that into consideration, the response from the public, um, if there is any implication whatsoever of the unexplained. But I, I, but I feel that the, uh, any intelligent life form out there, any intelligent beings out there are probably care as little about who knows of them or not i don't think they're exclusively talking to the government i don't or the american government in particular i i don't I, any more than us as a species would 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 you know uh, limit our conversations to one particular species of of animal if we were to run across a new planet full of animals you know i i just think i think that's a bit um limiting quite frankly i think if a nation an alien intelligence wants to be known we will know <laughs> without a doubt we will we it will be now is there a possibility that there are aliens out there that have traversed space and time and are, and are, are cracking the door open every now and then to check in on us that's all you know who's to say but i just find it hard to believe that an alien is captured and is somehow unable to to communicate beyond the confines of a police inter interrogation room, right? So <laughs> that's just my my take on it. it. Conspiracy theories take on a life of their own, and and unfortunately, a lot of them can really muddy the water mm -hmm. and delegitimize a lot of like really interesting experiences that have that are out there. So you have to be careful what you spread and who, whom you believe that everything should, you know, uh, should be judged by the burden of the evidence. Right. I mean, ironically, some of the oldest things, like when I look at the kind of the Trent, the famous Trent photos, um, which, you know, gave rise to the Oregon UFO fest, mm -hmm. um, Trent, the Trent, those two Trent farm photos of like the most, like arguably most famous saucer photos in history, as a photographer myself, I look at those photos and I go, this is either one of the best hoaxes ever. When you look at those photos and you look at the negatives, um, the lighting on the object over the field, over that farm field, it's like it's an incredible 
incredible hoax, one of the best ever, or something's flying in the sky over the Trent farm. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, those are the two, you know, and you, and you, you know, when I was at the UFO fest with Michael, we, we went to the, they had the documentary on, on the husband and wife that supposedly, you know, took those pictures and they were the most unassuming podunk people you would ever want to meet. Right. And that these are not the kinds of people that were, decide to put some elaborate hoax together for publicity purposes or just sell a book. I just doesn't, it doesn't add up. Right. So yes, there are people that said, Oh yeah, he pulled a hoax or not. So, but again, though it's those incidences that you're like, Hmm, that makes you wonder. Right. And, and it's, it's usually the simplest, you know, the, 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 um, least elaborate, of the experiences that I find the most believable and compelling, not, not these kind of deep grand conspiracies that I, that I feel are better at, at uh, getting people riled up and, and whatnot. But that's just my personal opinion. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a very um, insightful opinion because I mean, I I've heard you in interviews talk about Betty and Barney Hill as well. And this is another scenario, another one. you the know, where there's just yeah, yeah. so normal people, you know, everyday people, claiming these things and um they don't want the publicity they didn't want anyone to know about it except possibly the air force you know to figure out what the hell it was so yeah Yeah. i I think you're right the more uh, people in walks of life um i've spoken to so many different people law enforcement teachers uh clergy whatever they're all claiming these things so these aren't kooks and cranks and you know the crazy people as we we've sort of talked about what Carl could become in his obsession. But um, yeah, it, it's it's fascinating. I think you're right. The simpler these uh, people are and less layered conspiracy theory, the better. Yeah, I mean, it's like the the Air Force video recently of like the so-called Tic Tac, you know, UFO. And you, you hear the guys off camera, you know, witnessing this thing rotating in the sky, you know, off the you know, off the starboard side of their jet. And, in, and, uh, one of the, I think it was a flight captain or whatever was doing a panel at, at, uh, McMinimus uh, festival as well. And, um, and he says, yeah, we were, we were watching this thing and it was defying the law of physics. And it's like, okay, these are trained pilots. The last thing that they probably want to do is be perceived as crazy UFO kooks in their career, right. In their, in their profession, not, not a good look for them. But there it is on the screen on the on the FLIR radar and 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 them off off camera you know play by play describing this thing. So that's you know is it some terrestrial based probe from Russia? Could be, I guess. Mm-hmm. There's the technology is constantly surprising me. Um, but it's those events that are that aren't easily defined, but are also the simplest ones um, that that I find the most compelling. Well, kind of, um, I could keep you here for hours, Dan, but we won't do that to you. Um, some wrap-up questions for you here. Uh, moving back to filming, you know, we mentioned Joshua Tree and some of these really cool places you shot in. Um, so working with your cast and crew, which I assume is rather minimal when you're making a film like this, uh, did anyone have any personal stories to share with you about UFOs, aliens, paranormal I mean, no, nothing overt that anyone came up to, or if they did, I, I was so wrapped up in filming. I just went in one ear and out the other. I mean, a lot of what was so cool about what we were doing, especially during principal was, you know, we were all sort of 
practically living out in the desert for three weeks. Um, and I would kind of give these light shows because I brought my RV out there. I just camped out there on set and I brought this green laser with me. I like to point stars out in constellations and stuff like that. And, you know, we'd, we'd all after we'd wrap, excuse me, after we'd wrap for the day, we'd sit down, have a few beers and, you know, we would like look at strange things flying in the sky and, you know, oh, that's a satellite, but that we're not sure. And, and, uh, point out constellations. And there were some great, great times we had there. And, and, you know, there's a few people talk about their belief in and ufo and, and intelligent life but nothing specific that that um what my actors or crew had mentioned to me certainly um you know some of the people that I, we had interviewed through our travels like at some of the festivals and some of the vendors that michael interviewed mm-hmm. um gave us some really compelling stories but um but yeah outside of a, a you know, some of our nightly, you know, light shows that we, we got. I mean, the trouble is nowadays with a lot of the technology and, you know, more and more satellites in the sky, it's getting harder and harder to discern what's man-made and what's not yeah. up in the sky. I mean, every it seems like every five minutes there's another satellite flying by. And, uh, you know, I had a strange occasion when, you know, a few years ago when I was out camping and I saw what I thought was a satellite and, and it was flying overhead. I knew it wasn't a plane. It was just a solid white dot cruising over my head. Then it slowed down for a minute, and then it sped up again. I thought mm-hmm. that was real weird. Um, and just sort of doing the math in my head didn't seem like that would be the behavior of a satellite or an airplane. So, uh, you know, but now who knows? There's so much junk flying up there with drones and yeah, <laughs> and, our and number and one satellites. enemy. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to. Uh, you know, you have to be uh, even more scrutinizing than ever before. Absolutely. And I mean, nowadays, anyone can, there's apps on your phone where you can put a UFO in your photo or video. So, I mean, I know you're right. Once we once depended on videos and photographs as our evidence. And now they're like, like we said, our worst enemy when it comes to this, because it could just be a special effects artist. It's kind of their calling card. You know, like, yeah. look at what I did. I got a million views. Hire me. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you go to YouTube and and see, uh, you know, any of these UFO videos. It's CJ work is pretty incredible. Some of them look really, really realistic. Yeah. Um, but occasionally, you know, you, you'll get something from a local news affiliate and they'll report something strange in the sky and they've got video of it. And you know, it's authentic and like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> that's yeah. weird. Or you'll get, you know, a video like this from, from, you know, the military that, you know, is not a, a fake. There's no point in having it, you know, be inauthentic on, from their perspective. So occasionally we still get video of stuff that you can take as, as at face value, but you're right. I mean, most anything, anybody that I say that I see sending me a YouTube video of this amazing UFO, I'm, I, I immediately like, uh, my, my, my BS meter starts to go up real <laughs> Fast. Yeah, same. I'm, I always and then you know you watch it and then you're like, oh, okay. Well, this YouTube person only has one video up. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. dramatic music behind the UFO. Exactly. Video. Yeah. They, they took some time to make this thing. So. The, the, ba- the bad, the bad font graphics <laughs> flying in and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That giveaway. <laughs> you have definitely done your research, Dad, for sure. Um, <laughs> Well, I mean, let's let's kind of end there in terms of um, your research in researching these topics, you know, ever since you were a kid and now making a film about close encounters and whatnot. What was the most rewarding thing you personally took away from the entire process of Skyman? 
I think, I think for me, you know, as an artist, you always want to make something because um, you're putting so much energy and heart and soul into a, into a project. At least for me, it's 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 a multi-year process for me. I mean, I I typically will write and direct, even shoot and edit all my own stuff. So it's a it's an all-in endeavor, and and to have people uh, respond well to the end result is always incredibly rewarding. I mean, that's why you do it. And you're trying to communicate and move people emotionally with this, you know, one supposed skill set you have. And, um, and to, you know, we got great reviews from the New York times and IndieWire and Austin Chronicle and a whole bunch of other big names out there. And that's incredibly rewarding. But even more than that, just people like yourself, especially like that, that are that uh, are kind of well versed in the, into the UFO kind of culture and subculture to say they really like the movie is, is, is a big reward. So as an artist, that's a big part of it. And also, it's just a person, you know, making a film sort of the way you want to make it with a bunch of people that you really like working with is also hugely rewarding. It's you wish you could do it on every movie. Uh, that would allow you to do that because it really is a big playground. You're all in this sandbox, literally um, getting to make a movie out in the middle of the desert and just having a blast doing it. And it shows that that camaraderie, the collaboration, they're all trying to make something meaningful. And it's, it's just a great communal collaborative experience that, that I wish everyone could could experience and that's also very rewarding so it was very very lucky to be able to do sky man and i i have to really thank my producer joe Rustano wanted to help bring it all together as well as the actors you know um they just really delivered they just delivered 110 percent well you know moving away from sky man and wrapping up here dan i've read that you're actually working on some other really cool stuff with i horror so i was wondering could you tell us a little about what you're doing with them and yeah what comes next for you as a filmmaker well we started this project called black veil <clears throat> it's uh you can check it out it's blackveilonline.com and it is a short form horror anthology series that we're shooting in florida where we're shooting before the pandemic hit but um, we, I've been wanting to do sort of a, uh, a horror anthology series for quite a while, but have been sort of searching for something thematically to tie it all together rather than just a bunch of horror shorts that really aren't connected. Mm-hmm. So, so I thought it was cool having grown up in Florida and, and my wife grew up in Mississippi and being sort of a product of the South. Um, I always thought Southern Gothic culture was very spooky and mysterious and felt it would be cool to base a sort of online series around that southern gothic aesthetic and so created this this uh six episode series um recruited the help of my friend jeffrey reddick who is a writer created the final destination uh franchise Mm -hmm. and uh you know i'd like to have him write and direct one of the episodes we also teamed up with Danny McBride, who did Underworld. So he's writing and directing one of the episodes. So we've got a great team of really creative people in this kind of horror thriller space that um, I had hoped to do a, you know, season one short films um, that would be 
really high quality for uh, the internet. So we shot the first episode, which I, I directed, and um, a friend of mine, Chris Peckinpah, wrote. And uh, so the pilot episode has been shot, and I'm editing it as we speak. So that's in the can. And three other episodes that we have pretty much ready to go once we get the green light to continue shooting in Florida. So we're, but right now it's anybody's guess. We'll, we'll see how it all pans out, but that's something we are very excited about. We think it's going to be very cool. And once we are able to roll cameras again, we'll get back into it. Awesome. Yeah. I, I understand, man, the world's kind of been put on hold right now, but um, it's, it's hopefully there's a glimmer of hope that all the film industry can get back out there and make stuff like you are. Cause I, I mean, the human element you gave to this movie, I think, speaks volumes, and it's something that has lacked in a lot of these ways that experiencers are portrayed. And, you know, my personal beliefs aside, um, I, I feel for these people. They're, they're, some of them are very traumatized, some reject it in their lives, some embrace it, but at the end of the day, like, it comes down to their personal journey and i think you just you did such a good job putting the microscope on that for people so um yeah with that being said where and how can we see skyman well it's it's still playing in some drive-ins i think throughout the southeast um studio movie grill you can catch it on the big screen in florida right now um but it is available on vod amazon and voodoo and all the kind of the usual suspects uh, but primarily Amazon, uh, I think Vimeo as well. So, um, so it's available right now as of the seventh, it's, it's been in wide domestic release. I think it goes into foreign territories here soon. Um, but yeah, you can, you can stream it right now. Awesome. And you know, without giving anything away, the last few minutes of the film, Dan, uh, you hit it out of the park, just like with Blair Witch. So congrats (laughs) on the film, Dan. And I can't thank you enough for coming on somewhere in the skies. Oh, really appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. Great interview. That's it for this week's episode. Again, you can watch Skyman right now on all major streaming services. If you haven't checked out the Summer in the Skies website yet, we just had a complete overhaul and design done by the brilliant Mike Rezzo. It's beyond anything I could have ever imagined. So head on over and let me know what you think. Somewhereintheskies.com There, you can also find all past episodes, articles, news, and a direct contact link to me. Again, that's somewhereintheskies.com. We are steadily climbing the steep mountain of being a featured podcast on Apple Podcasts, the largest podcasting platform in the world. So if you could, please take just a few moments to subscribe, rate, and review Somewhere in the Skies on Apple Podcasts, or wherever your podcatcher allows it. It helps us gain visibility and find new listeners. We're on Twitter at Summer Skies and Instagram at Summer Skies Pod. And lastly, I want to thank all our essential workers out there and all of you who've helped us get through these deeply challenging times in our world. I'm wishing all of you my very best. Be safe, be well, and remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies.
Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code GLOW.